It basically boils down to, you know, how things are structured from the, you know, the initial purchase of the of the property, right? So yeah, there's there's really kind of two ways to do it. One is you bring in investors and whether you refinance or sell or whatever you do, everyone's ownership percentage stays the same. That is by far the most common structure. That's generally what we do as well. What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. Today, our guest is Andrew Cushman from Vantage Point Acquisitions. And Andrew is joining us. He's actually coming back on the show. He's been on the show before. He's joining us to tell us about how things have changed, how things have gone in his multifamily syndication business throughout COVID and give us an update on the past year, year and a half or so some deals that he's done, what went right in those deals. And we're doing a look back on, you know, what happened in the market, what happened in those deals. And we're also looking forward and seeing what he thinks about the future, the future for multifamily real estate investors, the future for those of us that are going to continue continue to be in this market, what we should think about as we're financing, what he's looking at as far as markets go, the metrics he looks for, all kinds of great stuff. So if you're a multifamily real estate investor, especially in syndications, whether actively or passively, there's a lot of wisdom in this interview from both looking back at deals and looking at the future and learning about what his criteria are for his investments. I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor, and I help busy people passively invest in commercial real estate. If you're interested in learning more and applying to join our Passive Investor Club for access to our passive commercial real estate investment opportunities, go to investwithtaylor.com. If you're an Apple Podcast user and you enjoy the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys, that gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street Casino along with us. No matter what podcast app you use, if you haven't done so yet, do look us up and hit that subscribe button. That way you'll get every new episode straight to your mobile device every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. That's when we're here. That's when we're doing it. Once again, our guest is Andrew Cushman from Vantage Point Acquisitions. Appreciate you tuning in. If you're a multifamily investor or you want to be a multifamily investor, I'm telling you, learn from success, learn from people who have done it. And Andrew has a substantial portfolio. He's done a lot of deals, has acquired about 2,300, over 2,300 units since they started in 2011. Been very successful. We learned about a successful deal and what he's looking at moving forward. Great stuff. Without any further ado, here we go with Andrew. Andrew, thank you for joining us. Thank you for coming back on the show today. Hey, good to be here again. It's been great talking with you. And since the last time you came on the show, you've accomplished so much. You've done so much at the at the time. And then the balls just kept rolling. So for our listeners out there, can you catch us up to speed as to how things have gone for you for the last you know year and a half, two years or so? And you know, it's actually it's been a, a really, really good year. Uh, we've syndic- done two large syndications, or at least large for us. We did uh, 252 units in Fort Walton Beach, Florida. That was a 49.8 million dollar deal. And then uh, actually, this just let's see. Three, four days, three, four days ago, we um, had a double closing where we sold a property in the Atlanta area that we um, bought five and a half years ago for like six million and sold it for 20.7. And then uh, we, at, on the same day, we closed on the acquisition of 220 units in Savannah. We're really excited about that deal. 
and uh, operations are doing phenomenally well. So it's uh, feeling grateful uh, and blessed to, to have it actually ended up being a really good year here so far. So that's awesome. And I don't want to gloss over that because folks might think, do I need to record that? Did I mishear a number? You bought a property for six million and sold it for 20 and change million? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It was actually two properties that were just, just you know, like a mile and a half apart. Um, we bought them five and a half years ago for six million. We put one million into renovation, so not not a heavy lift, just light upgrades. And then uh, closed the last Friday for twenty point seven on the exit. So uh, not uh, not a bad deal. So yeah, that's awesome. And I, I wonder, you know, looking back, I think it's always smart as investors to look back on our bad deals, of course, but our our good deals as well, and understand where our successes came from. And I mean, that's a that's an enormous amount of uh, of appreciation. It's no secret that cap rate compression has happened and all that kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. you did reposition the property. If you break it down, how would you attribute the the success there between you know changes in the market versus I don't know whether you raise rents or cut expenses or you know walk us through the deal. Yeah, I mean, you, I mean, you certainly mentioned one of the biggest factors that we absolutely cannot take credit for, and that is the fact that you know cap rates continued to compress, and and the market for you know more and more capital became interested in multifamily. So that is something that we had you know had no control over. What we did have control over um, that really really helped is asset selection and market selection. So when we bought those properties, uh, it was using the same criteria that we still use today in that they're in a submarket of Atlanta where there was very strong population growth and strong median incomes. And you know, the primary d- driver of you know, rental housing demand is population growth. And if you have strong demand, that typically leads to rent growth. And so by purposely, you know, buying a B-class, working-class, you know, asset in a market that had strong population growth, that had, you know, good solid median incomes. And for, you know, what I, and that number in, you know, this, again, this is a suburb of Atlanta. So I think the median income there was in the low 50,000s, right? So well, why is that important? Well, because our rent that we were going to be charging when we bought those was affordable to the vast majority of people in that area, right? So the median income, I'll give you an example. Let's say your rent is $1,000 a month. That's $12,000 a year. Rent is considered affordable if it's 25% or less of someone's income, right? So if your rent's $12,000 a year, that means someone needs to make $48,000 a year for that rent to be affordable. And so, you know, when we bought it, the rents were like $700 and it's an area where there's $50,000 median income. So that means that the vast majority of people in that area can easily afford to come rent at our properties. So when you combine, you know, good, you know, solid incomes with strong population growth, that gives you a huge tailwind and dramatically increases the odds that you're going to have that type of exit, right? If you go, if you go all the way back to the, you know, the grandfather of, of real of multifamily syndication and boot camps, Dave Lindahl, right? He, you know, he started back, he started teaching this stuff back in the 90s. You know, one of his books is talks about emerging markets. I think it's the multifamily millions book. And that's what we did is we were we, you know, five, six years ago and, and even now, we were looking for markets where there was, you know, we could get ahead of 
incoming jobs and incoming population growth. And then that's exactly what happened is as Atlanta expanded, people just kept moving to the suburb of, of Atlanta and, just, and, and the incomes went up, the demand went up, pricing of properties went up and it was a successful exit. And that's the same thing we still do today is we screen very carefully for to find markets like that. So, you know, again, if you have a strong tailwind behind you, then that just dramatically increases the odds of your success. Nice. Now, the big question I think that anyone gets asked when you have a, a successful exit, and, and I've been through this, I bet you got this question, is why sell rather than refinance and just go buy something else, especially if you have so much equity in those properties? I mean, shoot, you can get pretty uh, attractive you know, uh, debt right now, and you could have just gone and buy more properties. You held for five years. Is that the reason why? Like, What drove that decision? There's a handful of things. One is when we, you know, those were syndicated deals, which of course means we had, you know, a whole bunch of investors in there for a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand a piece. And so when we bought those, we told our investors, hey, this is about a five-year hold. And we had reached that timeline. So, you know, generally speaking, you do kind of have to give give people some most people don't want their money back right away. But also most people want to, okay, I'm going to get it back at this, this point in time. And then, you know, generally try to honor that. So number one, um, giving people an exit. Two, as much as I very much am still a firm believer in the multifamily market and that they're, you know, the fundamentals are very strong in there, especially with inflation, there, there is more upside to it. There's also something to be said to occasionally taking some chips off the table. And just saying, you know what, this has been a huge win. Let's go ahead and cash it out and then give everyone the opportunity to, you know, to move on, move on from there. The other one that um, you don't hear as often is return on equity, right? Everybody talks about return on investment. Well, I put in a hundred thousand and I'm getting ten thousand a year, so I'm getting you know a 10%, you know, cash on cash return, right? Well, that's your return on investment. But if that hundred thousand that you invested is now worth three hundred thousand, <laughs> okay, and you're getting ten thousand a year, now your actual return on equity is three point three percent, right? So is that a great return? Mm, yeah, I don't know, right? So the, then it comes to say, okay, so if if you sell. And you take that hundred thousand that's now worth three hundred thousand, and you go put that three hundred thousand into another deal that makes, let's say, eight percent. You've actually just doubled your return, right? So that's another reason to sell is when your return on equity gets too low. Sometimes the only way to get that back up is to go ahead and move it to another property, right? And yeah, you got to factor in taxes and you know all that kind of stuff. But that's it. So those those are really the three main considerations. Is you know, hey, here's the, you know, we said this is when we we're going to exit. Uh, two, you know, sometimes it's good to just take a big win and you know pull some chips off the table. And then also three, just making sure you're getting a good return on equity, not just return on initial investment. That is a great point about return on equity. You're you're definitely right that people don't talk about that. Why do you think that is? Is we just think about the the hundred thousand that I put in and we don't see that, okay, well now it's worth three hundred or or I don't know, maybe it's more difficult to calculate and project. I don't know. Um, I think it's a couple of things. One, yeah, I, I just, you know, as an investor, and I know I, I do the same thing, it's just you know, you get in that mindset. I know I put a hundred thousand into it. So my return is based on that hundred thousand. Uh, so that, yeah, like you said, it's just the mindset of, well, I put in 100,000. If I'm getting 10, that's a 10% return. And, and that's true. And it's accurate. So then also from the sponsor side, 
you know, we're all guilty of this. It's, you know, if someone put in a hundred thousand and it's worth 300,000, no one wants to say, well, yeah, you're getting a 3.3% return on your 300,000. Right. And I mean, it doesn't, it, no one wants to point that out and, and you're not hiding anything. It's, it's, a, it's an incredibly successful investment if you have that problem. Totally. Um, but I think, so again, it's not a negative, but it's just something to be uh, cognizant of. And it's part of the decision-making process that, well, okay, yeah, pricing's gone up in five years. And yes, you can't get the cash on cash out of the gate that you could five years ago, but you don't need to in order to still get a better return on that equity now. Now, you can refinance and pull some out and do that. Uh, but again, you know, you, then it gets into you know, factors of, well, wait, you know, what if some people don't want to just leave their money in for, you know, another five years or, or whatever. So yeah, there, there's, there's a number of factors um, as to making the decision to sell, but um, those, those are the three big ones. Okay. So one of the things when you, I think when you read these, um, I don't want to say Dave Lindell's books in particular, because I don't know if this, this particular thing is in his books or not, but you read some of these books and they talk about syndication. Hey, you can get all this equity and then you can refinance and, and pull the money out and potentially refinance out the investors. And then you know, the sponsor keeps a property. Whereas, you know, investors don't really want to go for that in my world. They want to, you know, keep their ownership in the property. They want to benefit from that refinance too. But you hear about people doing this. Do you see much of that? Or is have you kind of gone down that road at all or looked into it? I mean, that's kind of what I see in it. Um, it's certainly less common. And, you know, it basically boils down to, you know, how things are structured from the, you know, the initial purchase of the, of the property. Right. So yeah, there's, there's really kind of two ways to do it. One is you bring in investors and whether you refinance or sell or whatever you do, everyone's ownership percentage stays the same. That is by far the most common structure. That's generally what we do as well. If someone puts in a hundred grand and that gets 1% ownership we refinance and they get 50 grand back, you know, they still have 1%, right? And like you said, that's what most investors want. And most syndications, at least that, that we see, are structured that way. But yeah, there, there is an alternate way of structuring that and then and where investors get bought out if a certain hurdle is, is reached. And the natural question is, well, why would anybody agree to that? Well, the difference is, is those type of structures typically have a much higher guaranteed return, right? So a structure where an investor has unlimited upside, they might have no preferred return or maybe a 6% preferred return, but they get to participate in upside. Typically, the structures where the investor gets bought out, that might have a 10 or 12% preferred return, right? So they have to get 10 or 12% you know, they all effectively quote unquote guaranteed, right? It's not truly guaranteed, but you know, you know, effectively guaranteed before the sponsor can get everything. So yeah, the limited partner investor isn't participating in the upside, but they have a much bigger piece of, you know, almost guaranteed income. And the sponsor is the one who's really betting on outperformance. And they're and the sponsor is the one who does not get paid at all unless it's a very successful deal. So that's why some investors actually would be interested in that structure is because and, and can give up that potential upside is because they're taking on less risk of at least getting that first 10 to 12%. Right. So it appeals to different aspects of the investor profile or investor pool. Mm, okay. Okay. Now in making that you know, selling the the properties and and buying a new one. You mentioned about you know taking chips off the table, but you still believe in multifamily as an asset class. And in the past two years, we've been through 
you know, these eviction moratoriums and people out of work and all these big things that have been kind of uh, headwinds, if you will, but multifamilies continue to perform pretty well, but presumably you're not uh, going to go open a bowling alley or start some other business. You're staying, no. in, <laughs> staying in multifamily. So are you, you mentioned you're in other markets. Are you, are, are you making that shift? And also want to clarify this, this market shift question with how do you avoid going to niche tertiary markets that are just on paper, they sound great, but when you get there, they're really bad, if that makes sense, if that's a sensible question. Yeah, I mean, we we focus on secondary and tertiary markets, uh, but again, they have to exhibit, and, and I mean, and some of our most successful deals are in tertiary markets. Um, you know, I can think of several that, you know, are now worth three to four times what we paid for hmm. them, and they're in, they're in little tertiary markets. Uh, because those markets were carefully selected for, again, population growth and median income. But how you make sure you don't get into one of the in addition to that, one of the ways you make sure you don't get into the wrong one is you look at the diversity of the economic base, right? So, you know, I would not buy in a town where half the population works for the chicken processing plant, right? Because if that plant gets shut down, you're host. You know, as stable as they are, we don't like towns where the majority of the town's economy is a military base, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, I don't remember how many years ago, but we went through BRAC, which was base realignment and closure, and they went through and they shut down a bunch of bases. And some of those bases are still just sitting there, these giant vacant tracts of land. And they kind of you know, gutted the economy of some, some of those towns. So what we do like are towns where you've got not only a diversified economic base, but one that's recession resistant, right? So again, getting back to the, the, the positive of military is it's not depending on the economy, right? Mm -hmm. So we do like military presence, just not it being the only thing. In addition to that, we like medical. Medical is, is a growing industry no matter what, right? We're getting older, we're getting fatter, we're getting sicker. <laughs> um, medical is going to continue to grow. And again, doesn't change in a recession. And then the third is we like a higher education. University, in a recession, people tend to go back to school. Right? And so the universities, uh, especially, you know, if you're looking at a well-established, you know, like large state, mid to large state schools that have graduate programs and all that, again, tend to be very steady economic basis. So, we, so we're okay with small tertiary markets if they have something like that, where you've got, you know, three economic pillars that, aren't going to collapse on you the minute we get into a recession. Mm, okay. Okay. So the chicken processing plan is, is a, that's a kind of a stark example, right? Cause we can see, okay, there's this, obviously this one employer, if you're turning that into say a metric where we, you want diversified industries, oftentimes you might find like a third, a third, a third type of thing. And then you have that kind of tail off. Do you have any particular numbers that you'd say, yeah, this area has maybe a little too much healthcare or this area, this one university is maybe a little too big a percentage of the, the employment base or, or is that maybe just enough of a good thing? Maybe it's yeah. I, I don't think you can have too much healthcare. Uh, but you know, it, it's, we don't have like a, a, a hard metric of, okay, this can't be more than 15% and this can't be more than eight or you know, anything like that. It's just kind of, it's more of a, the, the question to ask is, is if this disappeared, what would the impact be? Right. And so that chicken plant, that's, that's not a hypothetical. We actually looked at a, a property one time 
in a small market. And it was in what is there North or South Carolina? I don't remember which one. And I remember the broker saying, Oh yeah, 60% of the residents work at the plant. It's just a mile down the street, oh, you know? Man. Yeah. And so they're like, Oh yeah. So you got a great pool of workers. I'm like, uh, not if that place shuts down or, or has layoffs, right? 60% of my residents can't pay the rent anymore. Right. So that's one of those things where like, you know, if you just, your gut will pretty quickly tell you this is a risk, not an upside or a benefit. So, you know, and it also depends on the, the size of the market. If you're looking at, you know, a, a metro with a million people, it, you know, that's going to be much, it, the percentages of each industry are going to go down. It depends. There, there's not a hard cutoff. It's kind of, again, it's one of the, the questions we always ask is what happens if this went away? You know, what would that impact be? And what might come in to replace it and, and and make the decision there. But really, it's just kind of like, you know, if we if we pull up the, the employment statistics and it's, you know, like I said, you know, everything's 15 percent or less, then that's probably a pretty diverse economy. But if you pull it up and one thing is 40 percent, OK, you, you're lacking diversity. So now it's a question of, well, how stable is that 40 percent? Is it growing? Is it shrinking? What could it leave? What would happen if it did? You know, that kind of thing. So nice. Now to kind of. Um... I don't know, circle back on the the equity aspect or the equity topic we were talking about, return on equity before. Um, you know, I want to bring up financing and you know, especially considering your experience and where we stand today, what you're you know planning to do or you are doing for your current investments and and to make a kind of comment on the return on equity question. I think one of the reasons people are maybe a little hesitant to talk about that as well is because we don't want to we don't want to make equity sound like a bad thing. We want to have equity in <laughs> right. our properties, right? <laughs> yeah. If there's a numerator and a denominator here, and one of the ways to make that percentage go up is to make that denominator smaller, but that's not necessarily a good thing. So, you know, let's talk about uh, lending and, and borrowing and how you're you know, financing your properties now, especially you know, the Fed is talking about uh, starting to tighten. We'll see if they actually do it. You know, I don't know if they're going to do it, but whatever. Uh, interest rates, it's hard to say if they have any way anywhere else to go downward. So what are you thinking there and uh, what are you doing? Uh, as far as the type of you know lending that we do, it's, it's asset specific. Uh, I mean, we certainly like the idea of locking in a fixed rate for 10 years at this point. Uh, I, I mean, as long as you're not going to sell the property too soon and, and incur massive prepayment, you know, yield maintenance or defeasance or prepayment penalties, then I think there's probably less risk in doing that. Now, the deal we just did, we actually did use a bridge loan because uh, it had 20 new construction units that means to that that are are just getting finished now, so it's not eligible for agency financing because of those 20 units are of course vacant. And so in that case, we did a bridge loan, but we capped it at 75% LTV. Uh, you can get bridge loans now for 80%, which that's just the level we're not comfortable with and prefer not to go to. So our goal is to go in at 75% LTV, do value add, and hopefully very quickly get it down to 60 or 65% LTV loan to value. So that means we've got 30 to 40% equity in the deal at that point. You know, if you look at our existing portfolio, I think our average loan to value is probably 35%. So we're actually wow. very, very equity heavy at this, which we like because, you know, the, the, the only way you truly get into trouble with, an, a, with a, a real estate is if you can't pay the mortgage and the expenses, right? So if you got low, low debt, then, you know, you can ride through just about anything. So on the acquisition now, we look at bridge loans, we look at the agency, we try to stay 75%, you 
you know, or below. So we're not for, for us, that feels like a uh, appropriate leverage. And then on the bridge loans, we always, we go for, you know, we don't do, you know, we got, we got, a loan on this last deal, they said, okay, well, you know, one year bridge loan and it had amazing terms, but I'm like, that's a, you know, that's a short fuse one year. And what happens if the market, you know, the, the, the debt markets are dried up in a year, you can't, you know, that, that you don't have any, any leeway. So we went ahead and opted for a three year with two one year extensions, right? So really a five year bridge loan that, gives us five years, you know, if, if worst case scenario, now we think we'll be able to refinance out of it much earlier than that with no prepayment penalties. But, you know, the, the, especially at this point in the cycle, the first question should always, should never be what's the upside. The first question should be what's the downside. How can we mitigate that? And if you can successfully mitigate that, then to, to a level at which you're comfortable, then you can say, okay, cool. Now what's the upside? And does, you know, does the ups, does the ratio of the potential upside to the potential downside make sense, right? To, to go ahead and take that risk. So, yeah, so that's how we're approaching debt. We do, we look at bridge, we look at agency. Bridge is kind of the predominant loan that you're going to see in the market right now. And I, you know, I don't think there's anything bridge for some people kind of has a bad connotation, but I think that's a misrepresentation. It's just that bridge is easier to misuse than agency debt is. I think that's why some people kind of have a see a negative connotation on it. Bridge is a good tool to be used properly and then used in the right circumstances. Just don't just don't go for an 80% LTV one year bridge loan because that that's a <laughs> recipe for getting into trouble if everything doesn't go perfectly and it very well might not. So we might have, you know, I, I don't know, nationwide lockdowns and <laughs> yeah. you know. Yeah, who knows what's next, right? Who knows what could happen? Okay, so those are all great points. And I think when people t- are talking about agency debt, you, know, you mentioned yield maintenance and and all those types of things. That kind of tends to be shoved off into a corner and they don't really, I think people kind of tend to forget that yield maintenance can actually be like an enormous cost if you have to sell at the wrong time. Oh yeah. When we, some of our properties that we bought you know, I don't know if, if you remember back in 2014, 15, and 16, everyone thought rates were just going to go right through the roof, yep. right? Which, of course, we were all dead wrong on that. <laughs> and so we all we all did 10-year financing thinking we were really smart. We're going to sell in five years on assumption, and everyone's going to want to take over these loans. Well, five years down the road, rates are lower, and no one wants those loans. And the only way they'll buy the property is if we pay it off so they can get their own loan. Well, now all of a sudden we're, you know, getting six and seven figure uh, yield maintenance prepayment penalties. <laughs> you know, and it, it all works out, just still works out fine because the value of the properties were way higher than anyone thought as well. But, you know, it's not, okay, you know, just like you said, no one talks about return on equity. Most, you know, I think most, it is not fully addressed as much as it should be how important the right type of debt is to making your investment successful. You know, bridge has a place, agency has a place, floating rate has a place, fixed has a place. And it's not definitely not a, you know, one size fits all arrangement. Absolutely. I think too often it's 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 tempting to say, okay, we want the long stuff at a low rate because hey, single families, you buy a single family, get a 30-year mortgage, you're gonna hang on to it for a rental. Yeah, okay, that's a pretty good deal. You don't have the same type of risks or downsides that commercial debt does. And and we also have a lot more options in commercial as far as our debt goes. 
Yeah, and most most single family stuff doesn't have prepayment penalty. Yeah, absolutely. You, you, you can pay that off as many times as you want over and over again, and that's that's one huge difference when you get into commercial. Is you know they're packaging that off and selling it you know, on the secondary market, and they want absolute guarantee they're going to get the return. And if you sell early, that means you've got to pay the difference. So, <laughs> and I know uh, I know some folks that that has bitten, and uh, we need to we need to know what we're getting into. So I love it. All great stuff. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Have you ever wanted to invest in the private lending and debt side of real estate? You might find that going out and finding borrowers on your own is tough. When you find a borrower, you have the task of evaluating their plan all on your own. And the traditional way of lending private money highly concentrates your risk because you'll probably be funding the whole rehab loan on your own. That meant writing loan checks well into the hundreds of thousands of dollars, placing a lot of risk in individual borrowers and properties. Not to mention, there's a lot for you to know in terms of how to structure these loans so that you can help protect yourself and work with the borrower in your interests. Now, there's a new way to invest in the debt side of real estate that turns the private money lending space on its head. You can invest in a variety of debt instruments with this new platform with as little as $10 in each opportunity. You can diversify your investment across a wide variety of borrowers, geographies, and asset types. This new platform is called ground floor. They make it easy to invest in either your name or using your self-directed IRA. And if you don't already have a self-directed IRA, don't worry. They make it easy to get started and get one opened. Go to www.passivewealthstrategy.com slash ground floor to get started or click the link in the show notes. See the ground floor site for full terms and details of what they offer. Once again, that's www.passivewealthstrategy.com slash ground floor, or click the link in the show notes. Back to the show. All right, Andrew, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show, as you know, but you've been on the show before you've answered those questions already. I got three new ones for our returning guests. Are you ready to go? All right, let's do it. All right, great. First one, what is your favorite book to read for personal enjoyment reasons? Uh, this is probably one that's not been ever given on your podcast before. It's called uh, Staying Alive in Avalanche Terrain. Hmm. Uh, I love backcountry skiing. And uh, one of the ways to uh, enjoy that is to not get caught in an avalanche. Um, so I enjoy rereading that book every every fall uh, before the ski season hits. And I'm, I'm also a bit of a weather and you know science nerd. So I, I enjoy even just kind of just kind of the technical aspects of how snow and avalanches and all that stuff actually works. So nice. Cool. That's pretty cool. All right. We have your, we had your favorite personal book. What about your favorite business book? You know, uh, it's an old one that everyone's heard of and it's Dale Carnegie's how to win friends and influence people because, you know, underwriting is important and you know, all, all the things that we've talked about finance and all that stuff is important. But at the end of the day, you know, really any, almost any business, but especially real estate, it, it's a people business. Um, they come, you know, your relationships with residents, your relationships with brokers, your relationships with your lender, your team, you know, you, you know, you're, you've heard it before your net worth is equal to your network and it all comes down to that. And so, and that book is it's human nature, it's about human nature. So you see, yeah, some of the examples are a little outdated, but human nature has not changed one bit. And so I, I find that book to be useful in all aspects of life, but especially business. So. Nice. I love it. That's a great one, especially for 
at least me, I know you're an engineer, you have an engineering background, so do I. And I needed that book so bad. And I didn't even know it until I read it. It started, you know, things started to click for me. Yeah, so, that's probably, yeah. As an engineer, that's why I need to reread that book uh, <laughs> uh, on a regular basis because that is not my natural bent. So. <laughs> hey, these skills can be learned. So last question here is where are you going to be traveling once the COVID situation is over and we can kind of go back to life as usual? Uh, I am actually next year, this in 2022, uh, taking a boat to Antarctica to uh, climb some mountains and do some backcountry skiing uh, at the uh, far ends of the earth. So wow, looking man. forward to that. Yeah, That is awesome. Very cool. Well, Andrew, it's been great talking with you once again. Thanks for coming back on the show. Give us an update on your business, giving us a breakdown of a successful deal that you had, diving into some of the metrics around real estate and loans and so much great stuff. If folks want to reach out, learn more, get in touch or any of that great stuff, where can they track you down? Yeah, easy, easiest way is just our website. It's you know Vantage Point Acquisitions. If you Google it, it'll come up, but it's just vpacq.com. And there's a couple of uh, contact us tabs on there that comes to the old inbox. And uh, yeah, I'd be happy to connect. All right, great. Well, thank you for coming back on the show once again. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcasts ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. It gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content. It's a live read right here. And you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. I shouldn't even say it's a live read. I'm not reading anything. I'm just saying all this stuff. So um, thank you for tuning in once again. I hope you have a great rest of your day. Don't forget to subscribe. Catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. I will talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.